Well, I thought we'd start this morning uh, just having a, a time of prayer for those in our body who've been affected by uh, COVID-19, the gift that keeps on giving. And uh, we have a number of people uh, on staff, over half our staff uh, are uh, COVID positive right now and are at home, and uh, probably a bunch of our families have been affected by this. And, and so uh, I'm reminded in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes, for just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the many parts of that body are still one body, so also is Christ. Now, you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And so uh, we want to, as we pray, I want you to pray along with me, thinking of uh, people you know, uh, crying out to the Lord, uh, specific names of people you know who are infected right now. We have a couple folks within our body who are in um, categories that uh, you don't want them to be getting COVID-19 because of their age, and so we want to be praying for them as well. So let's pray together. Uh, Father, we know that you are uh, absolutely uh, sovereign. God, we know that all of our days uh, were written in a book before one of them came to be. Lord, we trust in you and we trust in your timing, Uh, but God, we still pray. We pray for those within our church family who have been uh, who've tested positive for COVID, who are sick at home right now. And uh, Lord, we just ask for your protection over them for their life, that you'd preserve life and that you would bring healing to the members of our church family, that you would stop this spread uh, within our church. Also, we pray for those within our community, within our city. Uh, Lord, we, we get to come at times like this and be reminded of where our hope is found And yet many in our city, in our state, in our world, their their hope is placed in things that, uh, just like Ron talked about, things that are changing every moment. Uh, their, their, Their hope is placed in things where we should place no hope. It's just empty. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use our church family to be different in this community as we go through what everyone else goes through. Lord, may they see that our hope is found in you alone, that you, you are the one where our hope comes from. And Lord, we pray also that we would be ready and willing to bear the burdens of others within our congregation, that we'd support them, care for them, and meet their needs during this time. And Lord, as the world looks on that and sees how we are responding to this, Lord, I pray that your witness and your fame would go forth, God, because above everything, uh, we want your son to be made much of. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be magnified in our weakness. Uh, Lord, it's not in our strength, God, that you are made strong, but it's in our weakness. And so, Lord, we come to you with weakness, without answers, without solutions, crying out to the only one who we can cry out to, who is sovereign over us. Uh, Lord, we pray for your healing and your will to be done. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so in in light of the fact that we probably have at least 20 people within our church family, uh, last week we probably had, you know, three or 400 folks who were involved in the church, uh, and so that's still not a small number. You know, 20 or 25 people in our church who are, 
uh, infected. Why are we still meeting as a church? That just seems stupid, right? But can I just tell you, I'm not here this morning to make a political statement. That's not why we're here. I have no time and no energy for political statements. We're not here to make a political statement. We're here to make a statement about the worth of Christ. Guys, that's why we're here. And you might think, well, I can make that statement and still be at home, but you know, why are we gathering? I know that God command, commands it. It was his idea that we not forsake the assembly, but why does he want us to gather? I think for one reason is because we really need each other. Guys, I don't think we do well alone. In fact, I think the last 18 months has proven that. There have been people who can, did not connect at all, reconnect with the church. There are some who connected very slowly. And from the stories that I've heard from people, it did not go well for them spiritually. Being out alone, doing it by themselves. We need each other. We're gathering this morning because we were made to worship and left to ourselves. We will not worship the right thing. Like left to ourselves, we'll still worship. We just won't worship God. And so we are here to kind of be reoriented around the person and work of Christ. That's why we gather because we become like what we worship. And you will bow down to something It just won't necessarily be Jesus. And we're here because we need to be here just like we need air to breathe and food to eat and water to drink to satisfy our thirst. We're here because we absolutely need it because something happens when the church is gathered. Something happens when we are together that cannot happen when we are apart This is a significant time. In fact, Paul Tripp uh, wrote a devotional called New Morning Mercies. Really, really good. 365 readings for the year. And in his uh, devotional, he stresses over and over and over again, like on a number of the readings, the importance and significance of corporate worship. He writes, corporate worship is designed... Well, designed by who? Well, designed by God. Corporate worship is designed by God to clear up our confusion as to what is truly important. Guys, when you gather with your church family, you're reminded about what is truly important. It happens right here and we need it. Corporate worship is designed to confront you with a view of life that has at its center a dead man's cross and a living man's empty tomb. That's what this is all about, and I need a weekly reminder of that with my family, to worship together, to be in this room, lifting our voices, lifting our hands, asking God to work in our hearts, Corporate worship is designed to alert you to the war for control of your heart and to help you and to, and the help that is found only in Jesus. Guys, we gather because we are reminded we need to have a, a wartime mentality, not a peacetime mentality. Like if we leave here this morning thinking that it's all good and that the enemy is not battling for the uh, attention and affection of our heart, 
then we're just being fools. Like there is a spiritual war going on. The enemy is prowling around even now like a lion seeking who he can devour and he will devour those who are separated from the herd. Like we need to be together and we need to be reminded that we are at war. Corporate worship is designed to move the meditation of your heart from self-centered complaint to God glorifying praise. Something happens when we get together and we're reminded of all that God has done for us in Christ that we do not deserve. It turns us from just being grumpy to being grateful. Corporate worship is designed to humble you by pointing out the depth of your need and to enthrall you by pointing to the glory of God's provision. This is so absolutely necessary. Corporate worship is designed to remind you of your identity in Christ so that you won't waste your time looking for identity elsewhere. Guys, when we gather together as a family, like one of the things that we remember is those people sitting to my right and left like are more my family than the people I grew up with. Like we are the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ and you're sitting next to people who you will spend eternity with. Like these are your brothers and sisters. We need to be reminded who we are and whose we are. Corporate worship is a regular gracious reminder. There's that word again, reminder. Just as one of the great commands of Scripture repeated over and over again is to remember, to not forget, because we are prone to forget. And corporate worship is a regular, gracious reminder that it's not about you. You've been born into a life that is a celebration of another. Wow. Like you ought to get that tattooed on your arm. You ought to make a shirt out of that. Paint that and put it on your wall. Keep that before you all the time. It's not about you. You have been born into a life that is the celebration of another. Corporate worship is designed to instill vertical hope when horizontal hope has been dashed like it has this last year. All the structures, all the people, all the things that we would normally point to for our hope and security are gone and we gather to be reminded that our hope is not found in those things in the first place. Corporate worship reminds us that our hope is not a situation, is not a location, it's not an idea or a thing. Hope is a person and his name is Jesus. Like the world will tell us to look to this or that for our hope to trust in the government or trust in the science as if it's just some entity sitting out there that's unchanging and not simply a process of trial and error. But our hope is not in a situation, location, idea, or thing. Our hope is a person and his name is Jesus. And then finally, corporate worship is designed to turn your heart from the shadow glories of creation to the one glory that will satisfy it. Can I just say for me, 
like corporate worship. I come each week and it's like it wakes me up to reality. I've been in the shadow lands all week and I come and stand with my church family and it wakes me up to the reality of God's creation and to what he is doing now and in eternity. So once again, in light of COVID-19 and the Delta variant, which will be followed by the Epsilon variant, right? There's just going to be another one. There's going to be a Lambda. There's going to be a Phi Beta Kappa, right? I mean, you know that there's more that's coming. It is that gift that keeps on giving. And so in light of COVID-19, why are we still meeting? Why would we deem it to be potentially a greater harm for us not to gather than to gather. Because, guys, we need this. We need more than simply an experience of worship. We need an encounter with the living God of creation. We need an encounter with God himself. We need to gather together in this only like New Testament, New Testament mandated gathering, we need to gather together to behold him, to obey that command. We need a foretaste of the glory and the majesty and the transcendence of God. That is what corporate worship is all about. I love what Tim Keller writes. He says that worship is a preview of the thing that all of our hearts are longing for, whether we know it or not. Guys, something happens in worship. Like when you're in the presence of God, gathered with the church and the word is taught, or these lyrically strong songs are sang, you know in your heart of hearts, that's it. That's what I was created for. This is truth. God is here. Worship is a preview of the thing that all of our hearts are longing for, whether we know it or not. And in Mark chapter 9, Jesus gives three of his disciples a preview of what their hearts were truly longing for. Now, just to give you a little context here, in Mark chapter 8, Peter makes that confession, right? They're in Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus says, who do the people say that I am? And they give their answers. And then he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, answering for the rest of the disciples, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, ding, 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 that's right. Like, that is correct. Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And from that point on, the gospel of Mark changes its focus. And Jesus begins telling the 12 that he is going to Jerusalem to die. This man they've spent at this point about three years of their life with, this man that they love, that they've placed all their hope in, is telling them he's going to Jerusalem to be betrayed and to be crucified. And then he begins to tell them about the high cost of following him as a disciple. you got to wonder, like, what were the disciples feeling at this moment? What were they thinking? This person that they loved is telling them that he is about to die. And, like, what did they feel? 
about this shocking news. And on the heels of this heavy message, the first time they hear it, we read, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And then both in Matthew's account of this and Luke's account of this, the very next statement is that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, and he led them up to a high mountain by themselves. In fact, this is most likely the mountain. This is Mount Hermon, which is in that region of Caesarea Philippi. It sits about 9,000 feet above sea level, 11,000 feet above the Jordan Valley. It is beautiful. It's, it's magnificent. It is, has an incredible view from the, the top. Uh, and the climb up this mountain would have taken probably just about the full day. They would have arrived when the sun was going down if it was not already night. It says Jesus led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and Luke adds, he led them there to pray. And so the evening starts with prayer. And then it says, and he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. He was, there was a metamorphosis that took place. He was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Luke, Luke says that they were dazzlingly white. In Matthew's account, he says that Jesus' face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Like, what in the world is going on? Certainly, this was unexpected by Peter, James, and John. This kind of thing does not happen and had not happened in the history of all of Israel. So what's going on here? Well, theologian Kent Hughes writes this about it. He says, for a brief moment, the veil of his humanity was lifted. And the true essence, his true essence was allowed to shine forth. Jesus wasn't being changed into something he had not been. He was being revealed for who he truly was. The glory which was always in the depths of his being rose to the surface for that one time in his earthly life. Or put it another way, he slipped back into eternity to his pre-human glory. It was a glance back and a look forward into his future glory. Guys, in the transfiguration, Jesus' identity his true identity was revealed. The transfiguration revealed Jesus' true identity. For a brief moment, a brief moment in time, his true identity as God in flesh was allowed to shine forth in all of its glory. Can you imagine being there? Like you know this man, you've been with this man for three years and though you admire him, though you believe he's the Messiah, you never expected this. Colossians 1.15 calls Jesus the image 
of the invisible God. No one has ever seen God, but Jesus reveals him. Everything you would ever wonder about what God would be like, all you have to do is look to Jesus because Jesus is God. Colossians 1.19 tells us that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. I, I remember when I was a brand new Christian, I'd been a believer for less than a year. It was my senior year in high school, and I was asked to teach a Bible study before school in the band hall that was going on every week. I'd never taught the Bible. I was brand new to the Bible. I got to admit, it was so bad. Like, it was so boring. I was bored, and I'm the one up there talking. And yet I was also super passionate about it because I was talking about this very thing, who Jesus really is. And I had searched the scriptures and studied, and I was just so amazed at the person of Christ. I mean, just go back in time, just a couple months from that moment, I'm a brand new Christian, and I go to my best friend the first week I'm a Christian, and I tell him, hey, I'm a, I'm a Christian now. I'm, I became a Christian. My best friend was named Bruce. He was Jewish. And he, I remember his response. He just said, oh, okay, Bobby, just don't go telling me that Jesus is God. Whatever you do, don't tell me Jesus is God. And so I'm a brand new Christian. I'm like a week old in my faith. My theology is certainly in flux. I'm a little bit of a heretic at this moment, right? And so I said, oh, well, you know, Bruce, I'm not saying that Jesus is God. He's, he's the son of God seated at the right hand of the father. Like I knew that much from reading the Bible, like I wasn't in church yet. I didn't know any other Christians. And then I left that conversation with Bruce and immediately I started thinking, is Jesus God? I mean, does Bruce know something about Jesus that I don't know? And so I went home and opened up the New Testament and just started reading and reading and reading. And the next day I went to Bruce right before school and said, Bruce, Bruce, I was so wrong. Jesus is God. He's God. And I remember Bruce just dismissively walking away. And that really kind of ended our friendship at that point. But guys, that's who Jesus is. That's what was revealed in the transfiguration, that Jesus is God. In Psalm 104, it says that God alone, it's God alone who wraps himself in light as if it were a robe that he puts on. And in Hebrews 1.3 says of Jesus that he is the radiance of God's glory. He's the shining forth of the glory of God. Jesus, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. And so in the transfiguration, it was certainly a looking back on eternity past, on who Jesus has always been, but it was also a preview of things to come 60 years later. John, one of the witnesses of the transfiguration, would be on the island of Patmos, exiled there because of the preaching of the gospel. And on the Lord's day, he would hear this sound, this voice coming from behind him, telling him to write down what he's about to see. And he says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw one like the son of man. 
clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And though John knew him well, he says that I fell at his feet as though dead. You see, the transfiguration revealed Jesus' true identity, but it also revealed Jesus' preeminence, his authority. It says in verse 4, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, Elijah and Moses are two of the most prominent, prominent figures in the Old Testament. If you've been following along with us in Unfolding Grace, you've read about these guys. They were two of the most significant leaders in the Old Testament. In fact, they were the voice of God to their, to their uh, respective generations. And by this point in time, Moses has been dead for 1,400 years. And Elijah has been gone for around 900. Elijah and Moses. Moses and Elijah represent, like they're representatives of the law of God and the prophets of God. And they stand there with Jesus, these two great figures representing the law and the prophets. And it reminds me of Matthew 5, 17, where Jesus said, do you think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And in this image of Jesus on the mountain talking with this representative of the law and this representative of the prophets, what we see is that Moses and Elijah were merely revealers of truth. But Jesus, Jesus is the truth. All of what they wrote pointed to him. Like all of the law, all of the prophets, all of the Psalms, all of the wisdom of Solomon, all pointed forward to a point in time and to a person. They all point to Jesus. And so it says that they, that we have Elijah and Moses, and it says that they were talking with Jesus, and Luke 17, 31 tells us specifically what they were talking about. It says they spoke of his departure, literally his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So what were they talking about? I mean, they'd come a long way, right? 1,400 years dead, 900 years gone, and they appear on this mountain with Jesus, and they're talking to him about the cross. They're talking to him about his death. He's unpacking for them what that means for the world. In fact, what it means for Elijah and Moses, the only way Elijah and Moses got to be in the presence of God was because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And so they're talking about this. And if I'm Peter or James or John, at this point, 
I would be absolutely freaking out, right? I mean, I would just be freaking out. Like, I, I mean, I would be thinking, what in the world? Like, he's glowing like the sun, and these two, like, stars of the Old Testament are standing on either side of him, and they're speaking about, like, going to Jerusalem and to a cross. Like, at that point, I would be so amazed, I would hopefully just shut up and not say anything. Peter does not do that. It says that Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. (laughs) Duh, right? What an ultimate understatement, right? Rabbi, it's so good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. This is classic Peter. And remember, Mark writes from Peter's perspective. So Peter is telling on himself to have this recorded in the gospel of Mark. He's saying, you know, some people, when they don't know what to say, they don't say anything. Like James and John, those guys are smart. And then some people just say really stupid things. That's me. Jesus, this is really awesome. Isn't this great? Why don't I build some tents for you? And we can just stay up here forever. And then it says, verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud this is my beloved son listen to him and suddenly looking around they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only this is my beloved son listen to him reminds me of the words written by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, where he said that after him, God would raise up his own prophet from their midst, and you, Israel, must listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him, because all the law of God and all of the Old Testament prophets pointed to the coming of the Christ. This is my son, Listen to him because the law and the prophets were only partial. But Jesus is the complete and final word from God. We read in Hebrews chapter 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Moses and Elijah merely revealed the truth. Jesus is the truth. God has said it himself. I mean, what else do you make of this cloud like that overshadows them? That's speaking to them. I mean, this is highly unusual, but... It's not unheard of, is it? Like if you've been reading through the Bible with us, you know that in the Old Testament, the presence of God is manifested as like a luminous cloud that would later be referred to by theologians as the Shekinah glory, if you've ever heard that phrase, the glory of God, the shining forth of God's greatness, his eminence. Like God would appear as this luminous cloud leading Israel by day and a pillar of fire at night when they were in their wilderness wanderings for 40 years. This is that luminous cloud that 
filled the tabernacle and later the temple on its dedication. This is that luminous cloud that departed and the glory of Israel departed with it. But now it's been, at this point, 600 years since anyone in Israel has seen the Shekinah glory of God, the luminous cloud. And yet here it is speaking, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Once again, I love what Tim Keller writes about this. He says, Moses had reflected the glory of God as the moon reflects the light of the sun. Remember, Moses went up to the mountain and met with God, and when he came down, his face was shining because he had been in the presence of God and terrified all the people. They asked him to put a veil over his face. But he simply reflected the glory of God like the moon does the sun, but Jesus produces the unsurpassable glory of God. It emanates from him. Jesus does not point to the glory of God as Elijah and Moses and every other prophet had done. Jesus is the glory of God in human form. Jesus is the Shekinah glory. He's the shining forth of the greatness of God. And so just imagine for a moment being there with Peter, James, and John and just drinking this in. I mean, all of their lives, they've heard about God. They've read the scriptures. They believe them. And it's one thing to know it and believe it, and yet it's a whole different thing to actually see him for yourself. What happened in that moment? Did they get new information about God? No. They're simply encountering what they already knew about God. See, that's what worship is supposed to be. Like worship, when you come on a Sunday and you gather with your church family and you hear the word taught and you sing together, it's an encounter with the God of the universe where it shows you and you get to experience and have an encounter with God yourself where you hear the voice of God speaking to your heart of hearts by the spirit of God. You are mine You belong to me. You are my son. You are my daughter. It's not emotionalism. It's not simply an experience. It's an encounter with God himself. And that's exactly what all of us guys desperately need. So that's why we're here. To get a sense of the glory and majesty and transcendence of God. And that's what should happen every time you walk through these these doors. Like every time you walk through these doors and enter what is in a sense God's house with God's people to be in God's presence, you get to have an encounter with the creator of all things. Now I read this story and I think, like you ever wonder why he would take these guys with him? Peter, James, and John? Like, why, why did he take anybody with him? There were many times you read in the Gospels that Jesus went away by himself for extended periods of time to pray. I, I wonder, is, was this the norm of what happened when Jesus got along with the Father? I think one significant reason that he brought Peter, James, and John with him is because they needed it. Like they, they needed to be encouraged six days earlier. 
the person they loved the most on this earth, the one who they placed all of their hope in, had told them he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to be betrayed, and he's going to be crucified. And they needed this encounter with God. This revelation of who Jesus truly is for their own encouragement. They needed this because they needed to be challenged. Just like Peter needed to be challenged after he confessed that Jesus was the Christ, but then told Jesus that he would not go to be crucified. Jesus told him, you're thinking about the things of this world and not the things of God. They needed to be challenged about the things of God. They needed this because they needed their lives to be reoriented around the person and work of Christ. And they needed this because they needed to be reminded, right, of who God is and how he will accomplish everything that he's promised to accomplish. And all of us guys in here need the same thing. We need this too. And so my question is, when was the last time you went to the mountaintop? Like when was the last time you beheld his glory? You had an encounter with his majesty. You left with a sense of the transcendence of God. You see, I think often, I know for me, I come into the church, I walk through those doors, and I'm, I'm kind of in a spiritual fog because I'm encountering all the different messages of culture, all the things that are calling, calling me to fear this or run from that or place my hope in something where hope cannot be found. I'm in this fog, and I walk into this room with my family, and the fog lifts. It's like Asaph in Psalm 73 this great man of God who, when he looked at all the people around him, he looked at the wicked and he began to be envious of them and he began to complain and whine about how bad his life was and how awesome their life was. They have everything they need. They're beautiful and powerful. Like they never face the consequences of their choices. Everything goes right for them. Nothing goes right for me. Like he's just having this huge pity party and then it says, and then I entered the tabernacle of God, the sanctuary of God, and everything changed for him. The fog lifted. He realized that, God, you've actually placed the wicked on a slippery slope. They're heading down to judgment. This is as close to heaven as they will ever get. And yet for me, this is as close to hell as I will ever get. God, who have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. They will fail. But you are my hope and my portion forever. Guys, we need to gather to experience that. Like when we gather for worship, things occur that could never happen when we're alone. We wake up to the reality of God. We experience what the New Testament Christians called koinonia, a type of fellowship in the power of the Spirit that united us like no other. And guys, one day, the thing that we read about in Mark's gospel, that luminous cloud, 
One day that cloud is going to overshadow us and we're going to be enveloped in it. And this right here, right now, is just the dress rehearsal for that day. This is choir practice. That's what this is. Like this is us getting ready for that day. And as they were coming down the mountain, he, Jesus, charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So they kept it to themselves until after the resurrection. In fact, Peter does tell of this event. About 30 years later, he writes it in 2 Peter 1. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain." I mean, that is so amazing. But you know what, to me, as I read it this week, what really stood out to me, what's the most amazing thing about this passage is how in the world were Peter, James, and John allowed to see the glory of God and live? I mean, 1,400 years later, Moses, the man of God, the friend of God, had said, God, show me your glory. And God said, no, you can't handle it. You can't see my face or you will die. Now, this isn't just an Old Testament thing. Even in the New Testament, it says in 1 Timothy 6, 16, that God dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen and can see. It's an impossibility. So how could Peter, James, and John... Stand in the presence of God and behold his glory without dying. How could they survive this encounter when Moses was told that it was absolutely impossible? I mean, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John writes. And we have seen his glory. Writing about this event, I'm sure. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So how could Peter, James, and John Stand in the presence of God and behold the glory of God. How could what was impossible for Moses be made possible? What made the difference? Jesus. Guys, Jesus made all the difference. Like he was there with them. Our mediator was in their presence and the only one who can bridge the gap Between God and sinful man is Jesus. The only one who can fully reveal God to us is Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. And the transfiguration, guys, puts the worth of Jesus on display. Jesus was there, and he made all the difference. 
And Jesus is here too. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, what was impossible for Moses, what was impossible for saints of old, this idea that sinful man can be brought in the presence of God was made possible because of your son and because of what he accomplished for us. God, that not only do we get to come into your presence, we don't come shaking and stammering and fearful and terrified, but we can come boldly into the very throne room of God because of what Jesus has accomplished for us as he clothes us in his righteousness, that robe of light that we get to wear because of him. God, thank you for the substitutionary death of your son on our behalf and for his resurrection and his victory that ensures that we can be with you and know you and come into your presence. Thank you for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.